Well, good morning, everyone, once again. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church. As I already said, we're a little church plant. We're just getting up and going, but God's already doing amazing things, and we can thank God for the work that He has done and the work that He continues to do. Well, if you have your Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we were in John 1, this week we'll be in Matthew 1, and uh, we're doing this mini three-part uh, sermon series during this season of Advent, and so we're going to be looking at a, another narrative in the Bible that talks about the birth of Jesus Christ. If you don't have your Bible, no problem, the words will be on the screen behind me. Now, I'm just kind of flipping my page to what I always say after every time I read God, the, the Word of God, and this is the Word of the Lord, thanks be to God. I, I, when I say that at the end, after I read it, it's not just a routine that I do. I really mean that. We're reading God's Word to us this morning, and we can thank God for that. So let's read Matthew 1, verses 18, and we'll read all the way to verse 25. Here's God's Word to us this morning. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to take for granted what is familiar. It's, It's easy to quickly move past what is common. Here's what I mean. If you've If you've ever seen the Grand Canyon and you visit the Grand Canyon, you will be mesmerized by its beauty. Your first time there, right? You'll be awestruck by its grandeur. I imagine the first time you visit the Grand Canyon, you're going to sit there and you're not going to talk for a moment. You're just going to take it in. Because it's unlike anything you've ever seen. But what happens if you move into a home near the Grand Canyon, right? It's like part of your drive on the way to work. In time, your perception begins to change. In your own eyes, the Grand Canyon, like, loses its luster. It doesn't captivate you like it used to. 
even though the substance of the Grand Canyon has not changed, you begin to take its beauty for granted. It does not put you in awe like it used to. The same thing can happen when we come to the Christmas stories in the Bible. It can be so familiar, you take it for granted. You're not captivated by the miracle of Christmas like you used to be. In this respect, adults, and I'm speaking to myself as well, right? We would do well to be more like a child in this respect. When it comes to celebrating Christmas. If the real reason for celebrating Christmas has become dull for you, or you've taken it for granted, um, and I've done that, that's the confession for me this morning, We need to ask God for a soft heart and fresh eyes this morning. We need help from the Holy Spirit to be captivated once again with the mystery of the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. So that's my goal this morning. It's really simple. I want to stir our affections by looking at the miracle and the mystery of the virgin conception of Jesus. In order to do so, I want to begin by explaining what I did not read from Matthew 1. What I did not read is the genealogy of Jesus Christ that leads up to verse 18. So instead of, here's what's going on. Instead of going to Ancestry.com, Matthew lays out the family line of Jesus through Joseph. The genealogy of Jesus provides for us a, a helpful context. Here's how. There is an emphasis on Jesus being in the legal line of King David in Matthew's genealogy. Now, the Gospel of Luke, which we'll talk about next week, also lays out a genealogy, but with a different focus and with a different goal. Luke's up to something else. Matthew's goal is to show us how Jesus is connected to David, because it is through the line of David where the Messiah would come from. This was a, was a big deal in the Old Testament. Straight away, it says in verse 1 of Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And he also says the son of Abraham. The line of David is emphasized again in verse 6 and 17. And we read in today's passage, the line of David is connected with Joseph, verse 20. The connection between Jesus and David is important because it was prophesied in the Old Testament that a king would come through the line of David. And Joseph, Jesus' legal father, is part of that line. Here's the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. So we read in Matthew 1 that the righteous branch from the line of David has come and has come to execute justice and righteousness. But the righteous branch will execute justice and righteousness in a way that many of the Jews had not anticipated. Instead of bringing military might, instead of controlling the government, right, which was the expectation, he comes to bring spiritual renewal. He's come to change hearts. So before even telling us about the virgin conception of Jesus, from the perspective of Joseph, Matthew wants to establish 
the importance of the legal lineage of Jesus because it's according to the prophets. The other contextual element, which is helpful for us this morning, is the theme of the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Matthew. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, that theme, you're going to keep bumping into that time and again. Matthew introduces his emphasis on the kingdom of God on earth by introducing the Son of God who was born on earth. So in Christ, the kingdom of God has come and is being realized through this first advent. And the kingdom of God will be fully realized when Jesus comes back at the second advent. And so the remainder of Matthew's gospel is seeing how the kingdom of God unfolds through this baby boy. So with these important contextual points in view, I want to reset the scene of Matthew 1, 18-25 in my own words. And obviously I'm using the text, the scriptures as my guide. Here's the reset of the scene. The origins or genesis of Jesus Christ. So that, that Greek word for, for birth that your, your Bible translates actually literally means genesis or origin. So Matthew's giving not as much the birth of Jesus, but where he came from. The origins or genesis of Jesus Christ took place when Mary had been engaged to Joseph, right? And before Mary and Joseph consummated, Mary realized that she was already pregnant. Naturally, one could easily assume that Mary was pregnant for one of two reasons. Either it was Joseph or another dude, right? It's easy to assume, from Joseph's perspective, Mary cheated on him. But amazingly, this was not the case. Mary was pregnant through the Holy Spirit. When Joseph found out, he arrived at the logical conclusion as to why Mary was pregnant. Therefore, he proceeded to divorce Mary. Now, it would have been reasonable for Joseph to not divorce Mary quietly, but he had mercy on her. And so it appears Joseph, along with being merciful, was also just. So before finalizing the divorce, something supernatural happened to Joseph. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the angel said to Joseph, now I'm quoting the scriptures, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. When Joseph woke up, he was faced with a choice. Would he obey God? Or was he going to follow the path of what appears to be the logical and reasonable conclusion to the world? Will Joseph execute faith and obey God? Or would he do what is easy and comfortable? When all said and done, Joseph, in faith, took Mary as his wife. In faith, he was willing to go down the road untraveled. You've heard that phrase, the road less traveled. Well, this was the road that has never been traveled before. And Joseph was willing to go down it. Not only that, he refused to consummate the marriage until Mary had given birth. This action was taken in part, to ensure that the child in Mary's belly was unique to every other child born, past, present, and future. Mary's birth, Mary gave birth to a son, and obeying the angel, Joseph called his name Jesus. That's the reset. 
I've already mentioned that Matthew writes the birth narrative of Jesus from the perspective of Joseph, from the genealogy to the details surrounding the conception of Jesus. Matthew is telling the story from the eyes of Jesus' legal father. Next week we'll see from the Gospel of Luke, the same story told from the perspective of Mary. But if there is a character in the story about the birth of Jesus who does not receive the same amount of attention as others, for being honest, it's probably Joseph. We talk a lot about Jesus. We talk about Mary for obvious reasons. But Joseph sometimes kind of gets lost in the mix. And part of that reason is because we don't have information about Joseph after Jesus was a young child. When he becomes older, he kind of falls off the picture. We don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us why. Nevertheless, what we do read of Joseph in this passage is quite remarkable. It's remarkable because we read of a man who was faced with a choice and he chose to follow God. Just think about it for a moment. Joseph was pledged to be married to Mary. For a first century Jewish man to be pledged to be married was more than what we consider um, an engagement, verse 18, right? It's like he literally went to the courthouse and filed the paperwork. This was going to happen, and there was no turning back. A pledge to be married was legally binding, and to call off the pledge required a certificate of divorce. It's, it's giving the paperwork. So when Joseph found out Mary was pregnant, he sought divorce, verse 19, which would have been entirely reasonable and perhaps expected. But remarkably, Joseph eventually took Mary as his wife, verse 24. I can't imagine the emotional whiplash Joseph endured. Now, we'll talk about Mary next week, but for now, focus on Joseph. What would that have been like? I couldn't imagine it. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Joseph to process what he thought of Mary when he found out she was pregnant. But what makes the difference here for Joseph what makes the difference? What caused him to take Mary home as his wife, even though he risked ridicule and personal, his personal reputation was on the line? He was a just and righteous man. The answer is clear in our text. And this is what I think needs to be emphasized this morning. Joseph took Mary as his wife because something supernatural happened to him. And it's the supernatural events in this passage that I want to spend some time on. There are at least two ways the role of the supernatural are obvious and significant in this passage. Let's first look at the role of the angel who appeared to Joseph. This angel was nameless in this passage. The, the, the angel that showed up to Mary was named Gabriel, but why this angel is nameless in Matthew's account, we're not certain, but it's clear Matthew didn't think the detail was important to his immediate hearers. One could surmise that the significance of the angel is actually found in the message of the angel. What do he say? So angels are, are this category of being that we sometimes do not know what to do with. If we're being honest, like the study of angelology, it's like, wh what do we do with that? Uh, we, we tend to caricature angels as glowing, white wings, throw a little gold in there to distinguish them from all the other beings, and then we see them in our manger scene in our Christmas tree. But the Bible does not know of this kind of angel, interestingly. A angels in the Bible oftentimes had something frightening or comforting to say, or sometimes both at the same time, which could have been with Joseph. 
they existed at the time of Jesus' birth. They existed after Jesus rose from the dead. We read about angels in the book of Revelation, and I have no doubt they continue to exist in this temporal world as messengers of God. We can say that angels are supernatural because they defy what appears to be natural. We don't know what to do with angels in part because our minds don't know how to rationalize their existence. Yet, we see them at all the big moments in God's redemptive story. You notice that? They just keep showing up. I can testify from, from personal experience, their continual engagement in this temporal world. There's another story for another day. I'll leave that hanging for you. The bottom line is this. God created angels so that they would be his messengers. They had a purpose. They had a role. If you can't come to terms with the existence of angels, then you're going to have a difficult time with this next supernatural event in Matthew 1, the miraculous virgin conception of Jesus. We often speak of today's passage as the birth of Jesus, which is fine, but I think it's more accurate to say that we are describing the virgin conception of Jesus. The aim of this passage is to tell how Mary was conceived. Not necessarily how she gave birth, but how was she conceived? How in the world did a woman become pregnant without ever having a sexual relation with a man? In our day, there are alternatives and answers to this question. There are. And I'm not saying they're right, but there are. But for Joseph, there is only one way that could have happened. Nonetheless, with God, there was another way. The quotation from Isaiah 714 is meant to bolster the claim of the angel. Here it is again. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. We read that Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. To the rational mind, again, this is anathema. It just does not work. The math doesn't add up. For those who have said in the first century, Jews and Greeks didn't understand biology. I've heard this argument from numerous um, people who are more liberal on the theological spectrum. They didn't understand biology and baby making. Therefore, they were kind of confused about what was going on. To which I always say, come on. Doesn't take long to figure out how the biology works. That's a silly argument. There's only one way to understand the virgin conception. It was supernatural. And it needed to be supernatural. And here's why Mary needed to be conceived by God, the Holy Spirit, so that Jesus could be fully God along with fully man. As fully God, Jesus was able to pay the, the eternal penalty for our sins. That's what verse 21 is all about. For which finite humanity could not do. As fully human, he could be the adequate representative and substitutionary sacrifice. Again, go back to the critics. I've spent a lot of time studying the incarnation of Jesus Christ, especially in my studies on the early church. I've heard critics argue that God could have saved his people in another way. He didn't have to become flesh and die on a cross. And this argument is often born out of the rejection of the supernatural. To which I say there was no plan B for God. 
There was and is no plan B for God. The only way to understand plan A is to come to terms with the miraculous, to come to terms with the supernatural. I'm not advocating that Christians leave their mind at the door when it comes to understanding our faith. That is not what I'm saying. We want to think well about our faith. What I am saying is that understanding critical elements of our faith like the virgin conception of Jesus, means that we must come to terms with the fact that an infinite God chose to engage in love of people with finite understanding. An eternal God brought himself low into time and into temporality, which is astonishing. In other words, I think it's healthy and important for Christians to have a category of mystery. How did the Holy Spirit impregnate Mary? We're not given the answer to this question on this side of heaven. And your science book isn't going to give you the answer. What we do know is that it happened. Listen, the incarnation is the most profound mystery of the universe, in my opinion. The most profound mystery mystery of the universe and we need to embrace the mystery along with coming to terms with mystery and the supernatural we need to come to terms with why God the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary why was that necessary why did God come in the flesh the answer is found in the names given to the fetus who would become born a baby and then become a boy who would grow to be a man on mission from God Our first clue is from the angel who tells Joseph that the name of the baby is to be named Jesus. The name Jesus, which comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, think think book of Joshua, think the dude who took over after Moses, think that Joshua, that name means God saves. Now that you know this, you can see the play on words in verse 21. Here it is again. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We, we must pay attention to what the angel is saying here. Jesus was not born to save his people from physical struggle. Jesus did not come to save Israel from the Romans. And how often we can treat God like the Jews treated Jesus like the Jews treated God in the first century. We take a look at our hardship in our lives and expect or even demand that God do something for us like he is some genie in a lamp. Now, surely God does provide. Absolutely. God does care. 100%. It says in the Old Testament time and again that God cares and provides for his people. There's a litany of examples in the Gospels where we see Jesus caring for physical needs. But physical needs are merely secondary or tertiary to the primary need, which is our spiritual sickness because of sin. David Platt, the contemporary pastor, theologian, a ton of respect for him, said this. Jesus came to a sin-stained world to endure the penalty of sin and to stand in the place of sinners. He came to die on a cross to give his body, to shed his blood, 
all so that you and I could be rescued from our sin and reconciled to God. That's the good news of the incarnation. That's why Jesus came. So what Platt is saying is that Jesus literally means God saves, and the angel qualifies salvation by saying that Jesus came to save people from their sins through his atoning death on the cross. Amazing. Thus far, I've pointed out how the text explicitly shows us two ways the supernatural shows up in this story. Here's another example of the supernatural that is implicit in the story. Salvation is also a supernatural work that is wholly dependent upon God and not on the work of natural man. And we read that God's supernatural plan to save is found in Christ. So that was the first name, right? Jesus saves. Second one, Emmanuel. It's the second name given to Jesus which is another clue as to why God came in the flesh. Emmanuel literally means God with us. Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah and says, the boy will be born, the boy to be born will be Emmanuel, which means, like I said, God with us. We saw a bit of this last week when we looked at John 1.14. God not only came to save people from their sins, but God came to be with us. The word became flesh. What this means that God isn't distant or deistic. God didn't create the world and sat on the recliner, sitting on the recliner with a cup of coffee in hand, watching things unfold. God isn't an observer in the stands at an athletic event. He's in the game. God is near. And God is uniquely and especially near to those who are in Christ. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, God is with you. Emmanuel. John 15. We, we sang this this morning. Abide in me, and I am you. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Please hear the intimacy from what Jesus says. A disciple of Jesus Christ abides with God, and God abides with him or her. John builds out what it means for Jesus to be Emmanuel, God with us. I want to end with a few concluding observations about what I've shared thus far from this passage. First, I can't help but acknowledge the remarkable faith of Joseph and Mary. It took faith for Mary to believe and accept the plan of God for her to be the mother of God, right? And it took faith for Joseph to believe the story of the angel and Mary. Faith was needed to believe that God was doing a supernatural and that God was going to care for Mary and Joseph every step of the way, right? If you imagine, again, imagine being Joseph. Like, how is this going to work out, God? 
I don't quite understand the, the path untraveled. It took faith. There, there are lessons we can learn from the faith of Joseph and Mary. So, for example, how will you respond next time you're up against a choice between what seems reasonable and what God is calling you to do? How are you going to respond, right? I, I had this conversation with a person who joined a church plant, and I asked the question, you know, what's it like to get all these questions from your coworkers, right? Well, how do you respond to them when they say, why are you moving to Iowa? What's up with that? And he's like, I just believe God is calling us to this. I believe strongly God is in this. Now, if I'm not a Christian and I'm that coworker, I'm thinking to myself, either A, whoa, that's awesome, or B, you're crazy right? But that's beside the point. It's the exercise of faith that is going on. That's remarkable. That is God at work. And oh, may we exercise faith like Joseph and Mary. May we trust in God's plan for our lives, even when it doesn't make sense in the moment. May every person in this room continue to grow in their dependence upon the Lord. May our faith in the Lord grow. So faith, that's the first concluding thought, second concluding thought from this passage. What comes to mind when I read this story is the love, grace, and mercy of God that is on display. The love of God planned a way for a rebellious people to be made right with a holy God. By grace, God the Father gives the world what it does not deserve, his one and only Son. And in God's mercy, through his Son, God withholds punishment through the cross on those who deserve punishment because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And for those who have, been, who have trusted in Christ, who are now able, are now, we are now able to turn around and demonstrate the same love, grace, and mercy to others. remarkable. May we be a church that has a reputation of extending love, grace, and mercy to others, right? What would it be like someday, 10 years from now, that pe when people think of Redemption Hill Church, they think of a people who gather, even, even if they don't believe in Jesus, but they loved well. They showed me a lot of grace. They showed me mercy. May we do that. May we be that kind of people. May we look at this text and receive that from God this morning.